Southern Queries. I'm India Bastien. And I'm Aubrey Calvin. Together we explore being a part of the LGBTQ community in the South. A quick note on terminology. On this show, we let guests identify in the best way they're comfortable with. Some of the terms or topics might be different, new, or uncomfortable to you. That discomfort is part of what we're exploring together. We encourage you to listen with an open heart and continue these discussions with your larger community. We encourage any meaningful and politeful feedback. Thanks, and welcome to Southern Queries. Hi, India. Hey, Aubrey. Who are we talking to today? We are talking to Dr. Jamie Harker of the University of Mississippi, and she is the owner of the Violet Valley Bookstore in Mississippi. I am so excited about this, um, mostly because I've had some really incredible experiences at bookstores, um, but also because I know you are super excited. Yes, I think (laughs) I've mentioned this before. Bookstores are my queer space. I love bookstores, coffee shops. I love places where things are not that loud and where you can sit and read books for hours and have great conversations. And so when I discovered that there was a queer feminist bookstore in Northern Mississippi of all places, I had to find out who the owner was. And then I went down this rabbit hole of, I read her book, The Lesbian South. I have her other book about a gay pulp fiction on my reading list for the winter break. So I'm just excited to talk to uh, Dr. Jamie Harker. Well, let's get them on the show. Great. Dr. Jamie Harker is a professor of English and the director of the Sarah Isom Center for Women and Gender Studies at the University of Mississippi. She is the author of three books, and her most recent one is called The Lesbian South, Southern Feminists, The Women in Print Movement, and The Queer Literary Canon. She is also the founder of Violet Valley Bookstore, a queer feminist trans-inclusive bookstore in Water Valley, Mississippi. Hi, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. We're glad to have you here. Uh, And so the first question we like to ask our guests is, how do you identify and what pronouns do you use? Uh, Identify as a lesbian, uh, though I am pretty open when it comes to terms. I'm okay with gay, queer. I like bull dagger, you know, whatever you want to use. Classic, yes. swashbuckling to me. I'm really not, you know, Dyke is fine with me too. So I'm, I'm pretty open with it all. And I use she, her, but again, I'm, I'm, you know, people okay. I use it again, that's fine too, but that works for me. Okay. I that. <laughs> I'm such a fan of the um, term Dyke. It just makes me so happy. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So you are a self-proclaimed lover of feminists and queer bookstores. When you were younger, what role did they play in your coming out and developing your identity? Well, for me, they were really central. You know, I mean, I'm old enough that I didn't have all the access to stuff on the internet and social media and all this visibility. It was really quite, it was in the eighties, you know, that was really clamped down when you talked about it. It was usually some like gloom and doom thing about how it was going to kill you. And, you know, I I grew up in a very religious background. So that's really the only place I was hearing that. Um, and so you just didn't have access to it. So it was books that kind of yeah. gave you a space to do it. You didn't have other places to find it. 
Um, and so for me, it was, I was really serendipitous. Actually, the very first feminist bookstore I ever entered, I entered by accident. It was in Orem, Utah. I was a student at Brigham Young University. And there was a little coffee shop that had opened up not far from my house. And I wandered in and they had like one counter and they had three sandwiches on the menu and they had four <laughs> bookshelves. You know, it was like one of those little fly by your night places. And I just went there because it was close and I wanted a place to read. But it was in fact owned by a lesbian couple and they had a little book bookstore there, like a little mini space. It's the first place I ever saw Jeanette Winterson and I bought Written on the Body there and read it. And they had all these classic feminist books and that became a space that I would go to. And before I even knew what it was, I knew that I felt comfortable there. I walked in there and I was like, okay, this is, yeah, this feels good to me. I didn't know why. It was like the first time I wasn't stressed out. Um, and and I couldn't, places, right? Right. There was so you know that feeling. I remember I was talking about this with Samantha Allen. I don't know if you met her. You would love to talk to her too. Author of Real Queer America: LGBT Stories from the Red States. Yes, yeah, I've read her. Yeah, I've read her well, book. Yeah, you are you for a time. So yes, I, 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 read, I was just I was going to say I read. She's in, that's in the book too. Yeah, she sent me when I told her. Yeah, I sat down. And I suddenly I was like, wow, that I don't feel stressed out. She goes, I know because you never felt that way before, right? I'm like, no, I hadn't. This is comfortable. I, I can be myself. <laughs> So it was a really good space for that. And that's just how it worked. And then when I, I went to Philadelphia to get my PhD at Temple University, and I knew that they had a, a gay and lesbian bookstore at Giovanni's room. Mm-hmm. I was there and my mother had come out to help me move in. And I remember sneaking downstairs when she was still asleep to buy the Philadelphia gay news from the corner lot with my 75 cents so I could check out the gay scene and find out where this bookstore was. And it was so exciting to go into that bookstore. I mean, it just had uh. everything. It had buttons, it had bumper stickers, it had t-shirts, it had more gay books than I'd ever imagined existed in my whole life. Two <laughs> floors of it all over. I was there. That was where I was constantly when I was in graduate school. Anytime I had a little money, I'd go to the bargain rack. I'd figure out where things were. I went to readings there. And it was that space that that was the first time I was out when I went to my PhD program. And I, that was a space I got to see queer people and read stuff. And it was it was really essential for me. Um, and the other, this, and I wrote about this at the beginning of the Lesbian South, I went to visit my parents who had moved to Atlanta. My father was at Emory University. And I was with my mother again, my Mormon mother, shopping on, on the Dragon Little Five Points, which, as you know, is a very queer neighborhood, though they didn't know yeah. that they happened to live around the corner. And yeah. we wandered into Karis books by accident. Yes, that is one of my you know, favorites. Like, oh, my so we wander in there. And I knew the moment I looked in there, I saw Nyad Press paperbacks. I saw cool, like, you know, you knew. Stuff, and I was like, I'm home. <laughs> I, I love that bookstore. And like years later, E.R. Anderson got a, a master's degree at the University of Mississippi after I got a job there. And so I would go visit. But that first moment, it was always that space. And every time I traveled, I would always find out where they were. I would go visit them. I'm, I, I consider myself a connoisseur of gay bookstores. I love them. And oh, yeah. it's, it's that place. You, it's like, okay, I know I'm going to travel someplace. What can I find that's there? And I do that everywhere I go, you know, and then I get disappointed when there isn't one. Yeah. Like, oh, I was in Hot Springs and I'm like, is there a queer bookstore? And I didn't find one. And I was so disappointed. How is there not a queer bookstore in Hot Springs? All right. Who's in well, Hot Springs? I Somebody think you have to, to you have to go up to Eureka. You have to oh, go up to okay. Eureka. Well, so, and we weren't going that, we weren't staying that long enough to make that drive. But yeah. Still, that's a shame. We need one. Yeah. You do. So it was always for me and because I'm a book person, you know, I mean, I'm a literature professor. I love books, but like bookstores in general, I love, but, but feminist and queer bookstores are special. You see books there, you don't see anywhere else. You can discover things you didn't know were in the world till you walk in. And that's why they're important. I think is that you, you know, if you know what book you need, you can find it pretty easily, but how do you discover the things that you can't even begin to imagine before? That's what those bookstores do for you. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. 
I have a question for you and then you can ask your question. Is there uh -oh. in Fort Worth? Is there in Fort Worth? There are, there is not. <gasps> there, now there's a bookstore that's pretty queer inclusive in Dallas. Sorry, I sidetracked. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Topic of what we're doing here. How do you find it? Where are right? they? Like, like, where's the list? That's one thing that I was researching is that a lot of these bookstores are kind of going away, especially the feminist bookstores that are especially feminist oriented or queer oriented. There used to be what, 200 or so? And now we're down to just a handful. Uh, why is that the case? And what are we losing by not having these bookstores? It's a really good question. I mean, part of what happened was what happened to independent bookstores in general. Yeah. which is first had the rise of Borders and Barnes and Noble in the 90s and the mega bookstores that people would yeah. go to and they thought they were better and they were newer and they had more books and yada, yada, yada. And they weren't always supporting those bookstores. And then Amazon came along. Yeah. Um, and, and that one-two punch was really difficult. So not just feminists and, and gay bookstores, but a lot of independent bookstores went out of business because they couldn't compete and they couldn't keep up with that. Um, and I think, you know, in the 90s, there was this increase of, of queer acceptance that happened in mainstream culture. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people didn't always know, didn't think it was important to keep supporting those institutions. They seemed like throwbacks. And, you know, and I remember when I moved to Pittsburgh uh, with my girlfriend at the time, it was just when Gertrude Sun Morrow Bookshop was closing. And it just closed on the south side in Pittsburgh. And I remember there's an article in the paper and they said, you don't understand why these are important. You know, these bookstores are not always going to carry queer books. You need to support your institutions. And people didn't really listen and they were right. Yeah. You know, they used to have a section at Borders and Barnes and Noble. And then when that wasn't sort of the thing anymore as the 90s waned, those books went away and they were hard to find. Well, so I, I mean, now that they've brought them, I mean, I, so I go to Barnes and Noble and the sex, the selection is so small. And it's the same books. It's been the same books for the past five, 10 years. At Barnes, at, at Barnes and Noble, okay, I've, I've seen these titles, I've read these titles, but there's nothing by small presses. There's nothing by independent presses, by feminist presses. It's just these national, book, national books, and I think we're just missing something. I absolutely agree. And, you know, Barnes and Noble and Borders, if, I, I don't know how to be fair to them, but to be fair, they used to have more books. Like when they first opened, they were packed with books. Like you would see more books in one place than you could believe. When I walk into them now, you notice how empty they are? Yes. They've gotten rid of all their back stock. Yeah. it's expensive to carry that many mm -hmm. uh, but those small bookstores are important now, i will say this so we don't get too depressed right uh, <laughs> there is a comeback in general of independent bookstores that's happening they've had a net gain every year for the last like five to seven years if you talk to the independent booksellers and it's because people recognize that it's not just a place to buy books it's a community building space it's a place to meet people it's a place to organize it's a place to make connections right that, and that buy local movement has really benefited independent bookstores and they're important. They're places. They're not just like you, you get a book anywhere, but to get a, a knowledgeable bookseller and to get the people you meet in bookstores and the events yeah. that happen, that's something. Oh. There's also been a comeback of, of queer and feminist bookstores um, in the last like five years, which is which is a good thing, too. You know, so it had gone down pretty, pretty low. The Goulian is a lesbian feminist bookstore in Montreal that opened about four or five years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and they did a Kickstarter campaign and because and, there wasn't a bookstore in the gay village there. And that was true in a lot of gay neighborhoods. And like, we need a bookstore in the gay village. So they raised $30,000. They have a collective and they started a bookstore. Um, there used for a while, there was no bookstore uh, in the Castro in San Francisco. And one of the local stores has now, I know there was one, the different, a different light was there and then they closed down because it got so expensive. That's part of the problem in urban centers 
the rents are so expensive and the you can't afford it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's true of a lot of buildings, but for sure, like if you, you know, I can tell you from experience, it's like if my rent were as dirt cheap as it was, I couldn't have a bookstore. You know what I mean? Like I'm not going to make it. So they're, but they're kind of seeing the importance of investment now. And I think that's exciting. You're, and you're seeing interesting innovations. So there's, and I'm jumping ahead. So stop me at any point. No, no, you pay. Hey. group of women, two women in Birmingham, Alabama, who had heard about bookstores and got excited and they started the Burdock Book Collective. And when they first started, they just did pop-ups. So they would do these events and they had all these books and they would go into coffee shops and different spaces. And now they have a permanent space that they get a room in the Quaker Meeting House in Birmingham. And yeah. that's where it is, right? So like they're finding ways to go and they're doing innovative spaces. There's a woman who used to work for Karis, who's now I think in Durham and she started a black feminist bookmobile, right? And so like they're starting these different versions. Yes. It's super cool to see. And, and she's I, on our list to talk to. Yes. But see, I, I have to temper my excitement because it, for me, every episode could be, let's talk about books. Why every not? interview is books, but India is making me talk about other things too. <laughs> are excited about because they see the importance of those spaces and those networks and that curated mm-hmm. way to go right you want to go into a place where someone can say what are you reading what should I read and then you know people come talk to me and I'll say who do you like and I'll start talking about like who I can match it with and other spaces they can find but like that that matters and so I as much as that was a huge trend that kind of fell off in the 2000s I think we're seeing a di- and you're also seeing other versions of this so they're getting like book festivals and like the Saints and Sinners Literary Conference in New Orleans is a space where you get a lot of that mixing. And you're seeing more of those queer oriented book festivals and readings and, and events that's helping people find, not to mention all the book clubs that you have, the queer book clubs online and, yeah. and review sites. It's really exciting to see the resurgence. I'm, I'm loving it. Yeah, I actually, um, I don't have kids, but I'm part of an LGBTQ parenting group on Facebook. And I have been so moved on how many parents have incredible resources for sharing kids books that are LGBTQ inclusive, whether it's teaching the kids about gender or teaching the kids about parenting, it's fantastic. And some of these books are self-published because of the internet, we've had this boom of people self-publishing their books and it's just it's so inspiring. Um, I, I feel like I need to write down a bunch of notes on everything you just said because I'm like, oh yes, I want to go there. Oh yes, I want to do that. Um, Wouldn't have like a road trip, like a queer queer feminist bookstore road trip across the country. I think that would be yes, great. Oh, that would be great. Yes, <laughs> do it. Be oh. for your so, listeners in the summer. You can lead them on a tour of places you you've talked about. See, yeah. India, I will socialize with people at bookstores. <laughs> Like you won't get me to a club, but I will go socialize to all the bookstores. I will leave that trip. Oh, let's do it. So, Jamie, your academic research is focused on examining writing through the lens of women, LGBTQ people, and really the importance of publicly accessible writing. What made you decide to write your latest book on the lesbian South? It's a good question. And there's a couple of different entry points. Um, but I think I wouldn't have written this book if I hadn't gotten a job at the University of Mississippi. So some of that was simply where I came, right? Mm-hmm. I've always been interested in, in feminist writing and queer writing uh, and how print culture and sort of material culture affects how we, how we interact with it. Um, but moving to Oxford, Mississippi, I became immersed in this Southern queer culture 
that I'd never really seen in that way before. Now, my parents lived in Atlanta, so I saw some of that when I would visit them, but I didn't live there. So I wasn't part of that community. It was more, I was more of a tourist, you know, I would pop in and out. Yeah. Um, but when I moved to Oxford, one of the things that was so interesting to me is, you know, everybody that I knew I was living in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania at the time was like, what, you're moving where? You're doing, are you crazy? <laughs> What's wrong I, with you? Yeah, I'm like, listen, you don't understand. I moved, I went down there and it just felt right to me. And I, that's the only way I know how to explain it. Like something about the space spoke to me. Um, and it was a great department and great colleagues, but queer culture was so interesting down here and nobody had the language to talk about it around me. You know, because when I was in cities, it's like, okay, how do you find queer culture? You find the gay bookstore, not anymore, but then you find the gay bars, you find the gay coffee house, there might be a softball league. You know, I mean, there are all these public institutions that you go to. Where are the gay neighborhoods? Um, and based on those metrics, there was no queer culture here, right? Because you didn't have any of those things. But there were these really rich, robust networks of people. Um, and when I moved here and started to meet folks, I saw just how, I, I think the simplest way to say it is how delightful how resilient, <laughs> how amazing queer Southern culture is. I just fell in love with queer Southern culture and the people that I met. Um, and there was such a great network of care. You didn't have the kind of infighting you get in cities because there simply aren't enough of us. You've got to stick together and you've got to help each other out. And I really appreciate that. Um, one of my favorite stories, not long after I moved here, we were telling a story of a, a friend and I call them the Oxford lesbians, right? It's like, it's a club though, it's not. It's like, there's a sort of group of people. And one of them had been in Florida. <laughs> There was a woman involved, you know, as these things go. And then that didn't turn out. And she was driving home and her car broke down in Meridian, Mississippi, which is about five hours south. And she didn't have a place to stay. So she called her sister who called a friend who called a friend who called a friend who put her up for two weeks while her car was being fixed. Right. And that was this like network <laughs> of queer Southerners, right. Where she found people to care for her and they helped her out. And you would not be able to go into the yellow pages and find that you have to have mm -hmm. that network but it's really potent when you're here uh, and it's overlapping and really interesting so you know the more i was here the more interested i got in that and the other thing that i did when i came was i taught this newly formed class called gay and lesbian literature and i've taught it about every two years since i've been here i've been here since 2003 and so i met a lot of the queer students through that class because there really weren't other spaces like that's where you go to meet people and network and i oh, yeah. learned so much about you know, where they were from. And we read John Howard's book, Men Like That, which is a classic of queer Southern history, you know, it talked about how do you recognize and how do you invent new forms for understanding queer life. And, my, and I would teach it to my students and they'd be like, oh my God, I, I can't, believe I came from that town. I had no idea. They're learning about glory holes and the rest stops and learning about where, you know, all this stuff they've never imagined. Um, and I really became enamored of it and interested in it. And then I was, so I was teaching and thinking about it and I was teaching a book, um, by Jane Rule in a class I was teaching. And in a book of essays she had, she was talking about why she published with Nyad Press and why she decided to go with a small feminist press instead of a big mainstream one. And I thought, you know what? Nyad Press was in Tallahassee, Florida. Like the biggest lesbian press in the world was in the South. No one ever talks about this. We all talk about like the only place for this is in on the coast or in big cities. And I thought, that's so interesting. I think I'll look into that. This is the famous last words, right? You know, you're like, oh, like, you know, I'm going to look into that. And now you have four book ideas and you've right. got I chapters mean, outlined like, and the book, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but I enjoyed every minute of it. It was so fun. So I'm like, oh, Naya Press, you know what? It's it's at San Francisco Public Library. I'll go, I'll just go look at the paper. And then I discovered all these networks of Southern lesbians, like, you know, in the correspondence files and looking at covers, you know, and I'm going to show you this. This won't show up on the podcast, but one of the Naya Press ones, Lesbian Civil War Romance, South of the Line, published by <laughs> the press. 
look how great this is. It's got a uh, white horse charging in, and it's all about this woman who's a plantation mistress, but runs a center for the Underground Railroad through her plantation and seduces her northern, like, second cousin within the first 30 pages. And then they escape to New Orleans together. I mean, it's the craziest book. What? So I'm going through this and I'm like, yeah, this is amazing. Like there, there was such a network of these women. And I just, you know, you start to like pull that thread. And then I kept going on and on. And I saw <laughs> letters from Dorothy Allison there. So I had to go see her archives at Duke. And there were all these other Southern lesbians there. And I was looking at, you know, and uh, I, all of a sudden I'm like, they all know each other. I had this hunch and then I kept like seeing these networks. So for me, it really grew out of my own lived experience. And that's why in the Lesbian South, I have some personal narratives that start most of the chapters where I talk about my own encounters with the queer South. And then I go back and I do these excavations of all these really amazing writers. Um, but I think it's, for me, it's really indicative of what queer Southern culture is like, um, that you just got this amazing, inspiring, often brilliant, sometimes just sassy, hilarious. I don't know how to describe how great they are. Um, and when you see their letters and you see how they write, you're just sort of inspired to see it. And it's a totally different South than anything I was exposed to before I moved here. Um, I just want to, come and take your class and be your friend. <laughs> you know, it's, I was joking with a student. I'm, I'm kind of like a fangirl in class. I only teach things that I love. So I'm like, is this not the best book you've ever read? Right? Why would you, why would you teach things you don't like? <laughs> That's what I think. So we always just, I mean, I think we do some analysis too, but it's like this enjoyment of reading and seeing those connections. I mean, it's, it's, I, I love the work I get to do. I feel really fortunate every day. Um, and I feel fortunate that there's such a rich literary heritage and a rich Southern, queer Southern culture that most people just don't even know is there. And when you talk to people outside of the South, they talk about the South like it's abject and everyone here is a victim and they're all just sort of like pitiful and not brave enough to move to the cities. You know, I mean, there's that, that narrative that comes through and yeah. they're missing so much that's happening. Yeah, it's true. I mean, that's partly why we started this podcast is because we wanted to start telling stories and capturing an uh, oral history form almost of people's experiences because we just don't hear about it enough and I cannot stop raving about the South and most northerners are like what, what? no way and I'm like no seriously it's amazing <laughs> I totally agree um Okay, and, and this kind of, I think you've kind of already touched on this already. And this is something you mentioned in your book, how a lot of people assume that you have to either be all the way out living in an urban gay area, or you have to be completely closeted. And you talk about how there's this middle way where everyone knows or knew and everyone in the South knew someone who was gay or queer, but it wasn't really talked about a lot. Uh, what are we missing by not including lesbian voices when we talk about Southern culture or Southern history? Well, and you know, I think this, I would say this more broadly, like when you, when you only have one narrow view of what queer culture looks like, you miss that whole diversity that's so yeah. important. So for me, um, what lesbian voices bring, especially from this era, was this kind of activism that was happening. So you've, you've always had, and you still have people who can be very accepting of their queer friends and relatives, as long as they don't have to say it out loud. You know, and it's and it's a, it's a strange dynamic. So we can talk about that. But I was surprised when I moved here, you know, how much more accepting, you know, Southerners in rural spaces in Mississippi were than, say, the Mormon culture that I came out of, where there wasn't that kind of acceptance for people, you know, it was pretty across the board. Yeah, you're out of here. We don't want a place for you. Here they'll say nasty stuff publicly, but privately, they'll invite you and your man friend over. 
and I'm always surprised by that, you know, that, that, that it's actually got a lot of acceptance. But what you see with this particular kind of lesbian feminist tradition, where they weren't just doing that tacit acceptance, they really were going headlong to confront the problems of the South while still loving the South. So they were like, we got to deal with the systemic racism. We got to deal mm-hmm. with the systemic sexism and homophobia. We got to re, I mean, like in Durham with the feminary collective, they were like, we got to rethink this whole capitalist thing. Like there's something really wrong with it. They were, they were organizing with like communist groups over here. I mean, they were really pushing the boundaries. They were critiquing the fundamental ways society was built, but they were doing it from within as Southerners. Mm-hmm. And they were insisting that they, were, they could remake the South and reimagine the South. And that's one of the things that I just love about that kind of moxie they brought to it, where they weren't being, you know, nostalgic and, you know, papering over the problems, because of course there are problems. But they were also arguing that there is a way to confront this, that in fact, the South, as Alice Walker says, has been a side of some of the most dramatic social change in the country. Mm. Dramatic, right? Yes. Why we insist on talking about it as a place that is unchanging when you go from the Civil War to the Civil Rights era, just to take two, right? a complete and utter transformation of how the society was organized and how space was organized, right? But we somehow want to keep this idea of the South and some Southern studies, they call it the nation's other, as a space (laughs) where we project all of our, you know, anger anger and anxiety onto the South, instead of seeing it like everywhere else as a robust site of conflict and change and activism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Black Power got its start in Greenwood, Mississippi. Do you know what I mean? Like all these traditions, all these traditions we talk about, it's like they're they're here in the South. Um, you know, the the uh, personal is political. That first manifesto, some of it was from women from a Florida collective who wrote that. Yes, we don't See? talk about this enough. And there's so much going on. There still is. When you look at the activism happening in the South, it is just inspiring. It's amazing. Uh, we don't talk about it that way, right? We have kept this, our blinders on, and we were like, no, we don't care how much evidence you bring us. We're going to keep our myth of like the unchanged, fixed, conservative South and not see all the great stuff that's really happening. So, um, Jamie, I used to live in Atlanta, and um, I was so active when it came to my political identity. You know, part of the reason why I have the word lesbian as part of my identity is because I feel like it was very political in my coming out journey. I can't tell you how many dyke marches I went to, trans right marches I went to, tons of um, organized talks, spoken word, and Um, readings at Karis Books, for example, but I just was amazed that there wasn't more people talking about the experience um, that you have as a LGBTQ person in the South. So I'm curious, and for us as hosts and for our audience that may not be familiar with lesbian Southern writing, whose work would you recommend we start with? That is, who should we be reading first? Like, do you have a, a book that you could recommend or a couple? I'm smiling because this is always dangerous when you ask an English professor <laughs> to recommend a reading list. I'm like, oh, sit down. Yes. I'll try not to totally take over and go with it. Um, <laughs> we will post it on our website. <laughs> if you so like the good thing about showing you the lesbian self, the good thing about this book is that it gives you a good overview of a lot of what's happening, right? Okay. But I would definitely say when you're looking at Southern lesbian writing, you know, Alice Walker, Pat Parker, and Alan Shockley for um, Black Southern feminists are all amazing. Um, yes. Those people have read The Color Purple. You may not have read her essays in Search of Our Mother's Gardens, but you must read that essay collection because it's incredible. 
Um, Pat Parker's poetry is astonishing. She's from Houston, lived in the Bay Area, does these amazing, they're like spoken word accessible, but really smart. Um, and, and she does a lot of that work and they've just published within the last, I think three or four years, a collective works of Pat Parker. So you can now get her again. And Anne Allen Shockley uh, was, wrote what's seen as the very first black lesbian novel called Loving Her. It was set in Kentucky, it was published in the seventies. Um, the, the book I always teach is Say Jesus and Come to Me, uh, which is about a black lesbian preacher named Myrtle Black. I don't know that. Is that a fiction? Nonfiction? It's fiction. fiction. Okay. It's fiction. It's sort of it like is roughly in the kind of um, naiad romance, but it also has all this political stuff. The opening scene, Myrtle Black is running a revival, picks up the hot woman on the front row during the altar call. And then no. the hotel room after that's the very first chapter. And you're like, thank you. <laughs> right. And that whole book is about like black queer people in the church and activism and how you negotiate, you know, coordinating black feminists and white feminists and working together. They have a women's march at the end of it. And the whole thing is amazing. Um, but there's a lot of this stuff that's, that's running through. So I would start there. And even though Jewel Gomez is not from the South, her yeah. book, the Gilda stories is a, is a black, uh, lesbian vampire story that starts in Mississippi in the 1840s and ends 50 years in the future and takes you through all these different moments of this where it's like it's just it's incredible <laughs> yes this is what I'm saying so I for that I would start there um, a lesbian vampire story from 184 from the 1840s <laughs> till the future that we have oh many. it's the greatest thing ever I want to oh, read that God. I know you got it's just gonna <sighs> read it now it's awesome that didn't get into my book i'm sorry to say but it's awesome so well you have time to write another book so i'm gonna <laughs> put it in your next book i know you're writing another one <laughs> i'm gonna take the banner i feel sure of it um i would also probably mention if you haven't read dorothy allison's book trash mm -hmm. um, she she was most famous for bastard out of carolina which is a, an amazing book but her collection of short stories is just raw and amazing goes everywhere from you know growing up poor and you know as a illegitimate child abused child in South Carolina to you know dealing with the lesbian sex wars and all kinds of just like her, her short story a lesbian appetite is one of the great uh, short stories of all time um, so I would definitely recommend her um, if you don't know anything about the feminary collective uh, Mab Sigrist and Minnie Bruce Pratt are both amazing uh, and Minnie Bruce Pratt's uh, collection of poetry, Crime Against Nature, is all about when she lost custody of her two sons after coming out in North Carolina in the mm. 70s. And oh. it won a Lamont Award, uh, one of the highest uh, poetry awards in the country in 1989. And that one's really amazing. Um, and I can go on and on and on about all these, all these great books, but there's so much and so much that people don't really know about or haven't remembered. Some of it's out of print. I mean, I found a novel all about like a, a women's strike at a textile mill in North Carolina. And the resolution is that they like take over the company from the capital and make it, you know, worker owned. And that's their solution to their strike problem. I mean, it's like, awesome. <laughs> it's just crazy stuff. It's so good. And it's like all these things that, that we can't imagine where they're telling stories that are not just about coming out and you know fighting racism and things but like how do you create collectives how do you create change how do you imagine new futures how do you revamp what the south can mean and what groups of people can help you make it that way i love oh. that what's so inspirational too so shifting gears a little bit uh you your bookstore is called the violet valley bookstore 
and it's a nonprofit that you started in 2017 and it's received national attention and there was a big Kickstarter campaign that was funded in less than a week and you've received thousands of donated books. Where did this idea come from and what are your hopes for it? The idea came from writing my book and, that, and that's quite honest as I was writing The Lesbian South, one of the things that was a through line all the way through the book was the women in print movement, mm. which what started in women's liberation in the 70s. And the idea was that we had to create our own means of production, right? We couldn't trust the mainstream media to, to give a fair shake to radical ideas. So they decided they were going to write the books they wanted to read. They were going to publish them themselves. They would distribute them themselves. They'd have their own bookstores and then readers would find them. And they built an entirely autonomous circuit of mm -hmm. book distribution. Um, and so many of the women I write about were also involved in the women in print movement. You know, the founder of Daughters Inc., for example, June Arnold, who was a novelist, um, also published some of the most important books of the era, including Room Fruit Jungle by Rita Mae Brown, another Southern lesbian writer, which became a runaway bestseller. Um, and so many of the books we read today that are important were published by these feminist presses. Um, this Bridge Called My Back, Writings by a Radical Woman of Color, Homegirls by Barbara Smith, um, Borderlands La Frontera, like, you know, all these books were published by feminist presses and distributed in these independent bookstores. And when, the more I read about them, I was like, you know, these women were amazing. They did this with nothing. They were like right out of college. They had $300 and they were living in like a cold flat walk up on the fourth floor or whatever. <laughs> you know, like we can start a bookstore. They knew nothing about it. And they just threw themselves into the void. And it was so much harder then than it is now. You know I mean? Like you couldn't just like figure out how to post it on a blog and be done with it. They had to literally buy used presses and learn how to set type. You know, they had to like, often they would be like typing them up on manual typewriters, photocopying them and getting enormous staplers and just folding them over for like, you see the early chapbooks, they're hilarious. Um, you're way too young to know about mimeograph machines, but they would have these mimeograph machines. You can put, look at this on YouTube. And it was literally like purple ink that you would run on a barrel and it would be wet. And if you touch it too soon, it would smear and they would put up flyers on that. I mean, they had to get you know, there. I used one of those in elementary school. I used one of those like in the 80s. The no, I, I did that they in the 80s. Stuff. They learned how to, they wrote it, they learned how to print it. Then they would like throw it in their satchel and ride across the country on their motorcycles and couch surf and like drop it off in bookstores. So people could find it they managed to create this whole national network on a wing and a prayer and I thought you know if they could do that with nothing I could do this I mean like I have a salary I'm already ahead of 90% of them like I get a monthly you know like I can pay my rent from that I don't have to live on this right so it really did inspire me I was like that is just so cool and it's so important and I don't you know like I, I feel like I can't use an excuse to say oh I'm too busy or it's too hard I'm like if they could do that yeah, I should try it. What, what's the worst that can happen? I'll fail. But then I'll be where I am now. I won't have a bookstore, but I'll have tried to have one. The other thing was just serendipity. You know, I live in a, a town called Water Valley, which is 17 miles south of Oxford, where I work. Uh, and my wife is a chef there at the BTC Old Fashioned Grocery. Um, and there was this little storefront right next door to where her restaurant is that is 10 feet wide and like 80 feet deep. And it was literally an alley between two big buildings. And then like in the 1890s, they just put a roof on it. And first it was a cigar store. And then it was a two chair barber shop. I still get old men to come in and tell me they used to get their haircut there every two weeks when they were growing up. And then it was a really cool art gallery for a while. And then one of the artists started making quilts and she literally couldn't lay them out there because it was only 10 feet wide. Like she had <laughs> space. So she got I another can't make it. Yeah. She's like, I don't, I can't do it. And so it was just empty. And I was talking to Dixie, my wife. And I said, 
that would be such a cool little bookstore space. And I was just brainstorming, like, wouldn't that be fun? Someday I'd love to have a bookstore. I'm like, just ask Coulter, the artist, you know, if she ever is going to do anything, let me know. And I just thought it was one of those mild, you know, random things you say when you're just talking about dreams. And Coulter says, oh, I love that idea. Okay, it's, it's April now, it'll be available in November. So you can have the space then. And I'm like, what? whoa, what? I was just talking, what just happened? <laughs> All of a sudden it became this real thing. I just thought we were brainstorming, but I thought, you know what? It is such a cool space. It's such an affordable space. It's a perfect location. It's right next to this restaurant where people would come and see it. And I'm like, you know, what's, I'll just try it. Like, what's the worst that can happen? I'm going to take a leap. So I started doing some research and thinking about how to run it. I opened it as a nonprofit mainly because, you know, the work I do with the university is on feminist and queer issues. And my specialty is queer and, and um, feminist literature. And I didn't want there to be a perception that I was benefiting financially from the bookstore, even though anyone who's ever run a bookstore knows that's a laughable idea. You know what I mean? Like, oh yeah, I got really rich by opening a queer feminist bookstore. Yeah, and I'm going to get rich there. <laughs> you know, however, like I didn't want there to be a perception of that. So that just took that off the table. I'm like, I'll make it a nonprofit. Then it's clear that I'm not benefiting financially from this. And that'll also mean that if people want to donate some money or books, then they can write it off, at least in pre, I don't know if that's still true with the new tax code, but in the previous tax code, it was like, yeah, you know, you can get benefit for it and that might help us. Yeah. Um, and then I started asking around. So there's a guy I knew who was an alum from the law school, gay alum, he helped me set it up, you know, as a nonprofit and did all the paperwork for me. There was a lesbian who grew up in Water Valley who's an accountant. And so she does the books for me. And I'm like, I, you know, you don't want English professors doing the books. So we need somebody who's like, knows how to do this, can make sure it's set. Um, and then people just started reaching out to me. So, I, you know, the American Association of University Women in Oxford used to have an annual book sale every year. And they had decided to stop doing it because they had to store the books all year. And, you know, they felt like it wasn't worth it. And I knew the women who did. And I said, hey, what are you doing with your leftover books? And they said, oh, do you want them? Will you please take them off our hands? And so they gave me 2,000 volumes. Oh, let me start with, just handed them over. Wow. Right? There was a guy uh, who used to own a bookstore in Meridian, right? This comes up a lot in this conversation. And he closed it down 10 years before and just put it in his house and left it. And he was moving to all places of Alaska and had to clear out his house. And he said, hey, do you want some of my leftover books? I'm like, yeah. So he brought me another 2,000 volumes and gave them to me. Wow. So like, that's the hardest thing about starting a bookstore is, you know, the backstock and the expense of it. So I was like, well, cool. I've got a good, I got a beginning point. And then I was like, well, it'd be nice to buy some new books. You know, we have a specialty in Southern queer lit. Um, and I, there was a, an AmeriCorps volunteer who was in the ISM Center where I work. And she had worked at Square Books in Oxford. And was like, oh, I'd love to help you with the bookstore. I'm like, well, sure. Like, well, let's try it. How about a Kickstarter campaign? I've never done one. We'll try it. We'll see. We'll get a little money. We'll see how it goes. You know, if we don't meet our goal, we'll still figure out how to do it. And it just went crazy. I mean, you mentioned it. Did. It, it did. It got shared and shared. I think it was the novelty of it. People couldn't believe it. They're like, you're doing what? what you're doing where? What, how, how is this happening? And so it just got shared by my students and their friends and all these expats from Mississippi. And when we met it in less than a week. It was crazy. I was like, man, we should have asked for more. I had no idea. Like, <laughs> it's awesome. Um, and that, that really got us going. So, I mean, for me, it was like, it all just seemed to come together in ways that I hadn't necessarily expected. Um, and we got everything lined up before it went public. And that turned out to be a good idea because there was some pushback in the town once this went public. Um, and I think mainly they didn't even read the article and know what it was. They just heard queer and bookstore and they heard porn. And then they started having like all sorts of freak outs. So that was a little bit strange. There was sort of this like misinformation campaign going on at the time. There is that kind of assumption, queer bookstore, gay bookstore, uh, the the automatic jump 
is gay porn or erotica or something so, like such that. a problem by the way that this is like the association we've got yeah so, so same thing with the word lesbian hmm? right same thing with the word lesbian oh, absolutely if you, it was porn if you google that you're gonna get all those like horrible not very lesbian you know mm -hmm. porn sites that are like straight men's imagination of what lesbianism is but, right amy did you know that the founder of lesbians who tech had such a problem with that. That's that's why she got into tech was she wanted to change the algorithm in Google. Wow. Huh. Lesbians, lesbians and tech shows up first rather than porn. I did not know that, but that doesn't surprise me because we just we're so it tells you how messed up we are still <laughs> about like understanding queer issues and talking about it. Yeah, that's really interesting. So they they all had that stuff that went on there. Yeah, um, and that was that was a little disconcerting for a while. I mean, they they organized some uh, uh, some people in the church, the Baptist Church, and then organized a prayer meeting that what, didn't say it was explicitly about the bookstore, but it just happened to be in the park across the street from the bookstore. Oh, mm. prayer meeting three weeks in a row uh, across the street, you know. And I wanted to put a rainbow flag in the window, and my wife said, "Why don't you wait till you open before you do that?" I'm like, "All right, you know." That's she, a better idea. She's a, she's she's the voice of reason. I'm like. I'm gonna like like have somebody out there like in Statue of Liberty and Rainbow like you know I mean I'm like I'm much more confrontational. She's like please just wait. I'm like okay I'll wait. <laughs> um, and you know there was lots of kind of like crazy talk. I mean this like the rumors that they were spreading around that we were being funded by the Democratic Party. I'm oh. still waiting for my check by the way. I have no idea where that went. You know <laughs> that we were selling porn. That we were this that we were going to have workshops to teach kids to be transgender. I'm like, oh, like you, that's, you know, that's not how it works. I guess they don't know that's not how it works. I, mean, I could have like, used that class. It would have helped me. Right? We were going to have drag queen. It would have helped me so much. Like, that would have been great too, right? My This is my favorite rumor though. A gang of lesbians from a, a neighboring town was invading Water Valley and taking it over. Ooh, a gang of lesbians. <laughs> I've been waiting for a gang of lesbians my whole life. Where are they? Show up. It's time, right? Like I, was, I just wanted that. When I was a kid, that's what I needed. I need somebody to roll up in like the leather jackets and the motorcycle to like take some of the lesbians. Thanks on bikes. <laughs> you know, like all these things that they're so shocked by. You're all, all the queer kids. Uh, that would have been awesome. Can we do that again? We, you know. So there was a lot of that stuff and all that talk going on. So Jamie, what tell us more about the kinds of books you do carry? I so mean, here's what's cool about the bookstore, and so it's a really a mix. We have a we have a really strong core of LGBTQ books, and we have everything from, you know, literary fiction to genre fiction. We have history. We've got lots of theory. We've got some kids books. You know, we've got a whole range of things in there, and uh, it's sort of the front room is organized into a three sections, and the middle section is all that. Um, and so we've got a really strong core, but we also, whatever I get, I put out it's because part of our mission is to make books affordable and accessible to the community. There's no, there was no bookstore in Water Valley until I opened mine. You had to go to Oxford for a bookstore. Wow. So it has a kid's section. It's got a really good mystery section, science fiction, literary fiction, history, spirituality section, memoir, autobiography. Like it's got some of everything. Um, and whatever people bring me, I kind of like price affordably when it's donated. And then I put it back out of the shelf. So it'll ebb and flow depending on what, what I get, you know, and I guess sometimes we'll expand or close sections based on how much I get. I've gotten so many donations that I've now opened a second room, you know, so we've got sort of two sections of all kinds of things. And that's the thing that's been amazing is when people are moving or retiring or just, you know, cleansing their houses, they bring me their books. So hey, I always, awesome. have, oh, it's awesome. And a lot of people from the university bring me their books. 
So I have some outs like I have one of the best feminist history sections you can imagine because this this professor when she retired brought me eight huge bins of them. Right. I just had a Southern Lit professor bring me a bunch of stuff. So like like that now is expanded. So but I really have high quality stuff in there, and you can always find something for a dollar in that store. Hmm. You know, they're like usually it's under ten if it's donated. Um, new books I charge I have to charge what they charge me. You know, so those are those aren't going to be very different from a new bookstore, but. There's always a range of stuff there. So that's the way the book. So the thing is, it's a bookstore that has a specialty in feminist and LGBTQ literature, but it's a bookstore for anyone who loves books. There's something for everybody in there. So it's everything. It's it's, it's all kinds of books. And they have to come past my rainbow flag to get in. Ah. So rainbow flag in the window that says, we the people means everyone. Mm. And I have a rainbow flag. Um, and I always have, you know, that stuff in the window. So as long as they're okay with that inclusion, they're welcome to come in the store. But if they're not okay with it, they don't get the rest of the stuff because they have huh. to go past them in. You know, it's like you got you got to come in if you want access to it. That makes sense, though. That <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it has everything, but it has a really good specialty. So people come in. It's fun. There's a woman who's just been coming down who's like starting to read lesbian fiction. And she came in last week and said, okay. You gave me Jeanette Winterson and Ali Smith last time, and I really loved him. So what else do you have? I'm like, aha. So you know, they're sort of like piling up more books for her. And she's kind of reading through these sections. So it's actually it's fun to do because when you find things that people like, I, I can figure out how to match them yeah. to things that I already have and expand what they're reading. And uh, you had mentioned Nyad books, and I know they went out of business, they retired mm -hmm. and they sold their stock to Bella Books. Do you That's work right. with the do you still work with the feminist presses and the women's presses for books? I do. Or? And I, you know, I, in fact, I have ordered some books from Bella to get things. Mm -hmm. um, and Bywater sent me a whole box of books when they heard about the bookstore to help me get started. They donated a whole like sort of oh, stuff. Okay. Really nice. And I've had a lot of people do that. Not only presses, but like community centers and individual people. I mean, that, that's why I have the selection that I do because people keep mailing me things. Um, and I've got it. It's a great because it's like I want to get rid of these books. I want it to go to a good cause. And this becomes a space where they can come. Uh, but yeah, so I, I have ordered things from them and bring them in individually. I also special order for customers when they want me to. You know, sometimes people want to support the bookstore and get some things and I'll bring that in as well. That's good. Yeah. Okay. So your wife. Yes. Grimes. Um, so she's the chef of the restaurant next to the store. I am dying to know, how did you two meet? I met her after I moved to Oxford. So she is awesome. She is from Oxford, Mississippi. She grew up on University Avenue, right between the square and the university. It's like, you don't, you don't get more Oxford than that. Uh, and <laughs> was a show, you know, and, I, and when we first met, we were, we both were involved with other people. So we were friends for a really long time. Uh, and I first as met is her. the case. Yeah, absolutely. As things go, right. You know, this sounds familiar. In fact, <laughs> when I first visited Oxford, we had lunch at the downtown grill, which it turns out she was a chef at, though I didn't know it at the time. So she would become my wife, like I think 11 years later, right, as we go through there. But that was part of that, that circulation. I first met her because she threw this infamous Christmas party at her uh, party. So I went with my girlfriend at the time and there were a ton of people there and everyone was there. All the lesbians were there. She was, all the restaurant people were there, like all the rednecks she knew from school were there. Like there was a huge mix and everybody just like got really crunk up and, and party. And that's when I first met her. Um, so I knew her in that network for a long, long time. Um, and when um, we both had sort of ends of relationships around the same time, it was really fortuitous because we would never have gotten together otherwise. But when we were both single, we were like, I love you already. This is awesome. <laughs> so we were like, how did we not do this before? You know, so, but it was like one of those things where you already knew that person, you already loved that person, you already had that relationship. So when you, when you had that opportunity to be uh -huh. like, 
like the greatest thing ever, right? <laughs> that really became helpful. So I was, I was really fortunate in that. But she had been part of that network of people for a long time before then, which, you know, which, which was nice to see. Because it's like, that's, I think, often what happens, especially older, I should say, older dykes like me, right? You've known people for a long time and <laughs> you, you know people in those networks of folks. So this show is coming out, or this episode is coming out around holidays. Um, what will you guys do to celebrate? I mean, are you guys going to have another giant Christmas party? And who cooks the big holiday meal? Like, do you make your chef wife cook? <laughs> I, I never make her cook. No. On the other hand, since I, you know, she tends to cook because she obviously is a better cook than I am. So she's very nice about it, but I don't think she wants to suffer through what I would would come up with for her too often. Um, I will tell you this about Dixie. When I first um, moved in with Dixie and discovered that she had eight enormous plastic bins of Christmas decorations, I knew that we crossed into like another realm of like holiday decorating. She's curious. She now has 10. So the one thing we do is like we have two enormous inflatables. She's got every kind of decoration and lights and trees and stuff in the house, right? We have an enormous dragon and the wings flap, right? As part of that was an inflatable. I mean, it's all over the top. You so have a Christmas part. dragon? A Christmas dragon. You didn't okay. know you needed one, but when you see this one, you'll know. I didn't know that was a thing, but I guess it is. <laughs> Listen, Dixie Grimes can find things you didn't wow. know existed in the world. That's really exciting. So, Well, when we it's up, please send me a picture. I will. Seriously, seriously, I'm serious. Please post this stuff on Instagram and Facebook. Find me afterwards, and you can you can see this. It's it's excellent. But you know, there's usually like a great Christmas meal, and she brings all the southern classics, and she knows because I grew up with like Yankee stuffing. Like she actually makes something for the store called Yankee stuffing. That is the (laughs) stuff I grew up with, which is really sweet. So she has like a combo of both. Like she got the cornbread dressing over here. And then the stuff that was in the bird and like, you know, so she, she loves all that stuff. And like, there's this roll recipe my mother did that I always try to make it every year for Christmas. And, you know, so we have a lot of that stuff that we, we cook, but it'll probably usually pretty low key. It's just nice to have some time off and rest and hang out. And we may be driving out to see the rest of my crazy family this year, but we'll see how the, how the health situation looks when we get there. Absolutely. Yeah. And if you're anywhere close, I know you're not too close, but they always do holiday casseroles at the BTC that Dixie herself makes. Ooh. They come out frozen. So you can like take credit for her beautiful cornbread dressing and pretend you made it, right? I and made so this myself. If you're within driving distance and you bring a cooler, come on over, order some stuff on the website, take it home, heat it up for the holidays, and you, you can be taking credit for Dixie's creations. Well, see, I figured out the thing about that. It doesn't matter how far you drive. You just got to stop every few miles and refill, refill the ice. That's, that's stop a quick trip. And list of things like driving like, the cooler. You know, they got the cooler. Just refill the ice every every couple hundred miles. And then you can just get it and go. We can bring it back. There you go. Where, where are you located? Oh, we're in Fort Worth, Texas. Okay, so that's like a 12-hour drive. You, can you, go 12, 13 hours. you know what? Stop three times for ice. You got it. <laughs> For sure. Actually, I think it might be a, maybe a nine hour drive because it's 11 oh. hours to Atlanta. Come on. I don't know. <laughs> Peter, that's nothing. That's like a day drive. Come on. Come out and get your stuff. You can spend the night in the Blue Buck and Water Valley. There's a cool little Airbnb downtown. Come to the bookstore on a Saturday, pick up your casseroles and drive back on Sunday. Only if I'll we get to see the bookstore. Sure, absolutely. You're there. Absolutely. Actually, anytime else you come, I'll open it for you. That's the other thing I always want people to know. We're only open on Saturdays officially, but I will meet you because you know this is the job that pays my bills. Yes. <laughs> right. But I always I'm happy to make appointments. So sometimes when people are here during the week and can't come on a Saturday, just shoot me a message. I'm happy to set up a time and meet you at the bookstore to open it for you. 
<laughs> so the question we like to close out with on every show is what does being queer in the South mean to you? And why is it important for us to talk about it? For me, being queer in the South is to be part of a vast and glorious tribe of amazing people. Um, and I can't tell you how proud I am to be with, with folks who in often very difficult circumstances come out with moxie and kindness and hilarity and, and just pizzazz. I mean, I, I, I have never been as impressed by a group of, of queer folks as I have in the South. Um, so it means for me is I feel like I'm part of a fraternity I'm very proud to, to name and own. And as an adopted Southerner, you know, I'm, I'm pleased <laughs> that they allow me to hang out, even though, you know, the Yankee past really like comes up in many ways, but I really, I really have come to love my adopted home. And so for me, that's, that's what it means to, to be in the queer South. I mean, talk about it because it's amazing. It's fabulous. Um, and people should know, they need to recognize, as they say, Mississippi, <laughs> right? Um, and, and we need to, you know, not be afraid, not to let our fears control us. Because I think sometimes, I know I see this with my students as they're first coming up. They're so afraid of what might happen. They're yeah. so afraid of the things that could be taken away or the reactions they might get that they are preemptively prevented themselves from finding the wonderful things they might see, right? There are absolutely parents who will reject you or friends who won't be with you anymore. But you've already decided they can't love you for who you are when you keep it to yourself. And when you have the courage to step out, you discover how many people love you for exactly who you are. How many already knew and think it's awesome, right? And didn't know how to bring it up with you because they were afraid of like freaking you out. Um, and I think that's why we need to talk about it. I mean, we, we need to push past this idea that to be who we are is shameful or scary. There's a lot of folks, not only who are part of our community, but what I discovered opening the bookstore, there's a lot of straight allies who are all about supporting that and think it's important and think it's wonderful. Um, and when we have the courage to put our fears aside and find joy, we can share that with everybody and they react to it and come to it. Um, and I think that's why we need to sort of move past this idea of tacit understanding and claim this out proud Southern heritage, queer heritage that we all are heir to. Ah, oh, I love it. So that. beautiful. So awesome. Jamie, thank you so much for being on the show. Uh, to keep up with them, you can find them on Facebook or Instagram, Violet Valley Books, or check out their website at Valley uh, violetvalley.org. Um, they're also on Twitter as Violet Valley MS. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. Thanks for talking to us. My pleasure. If you're interested in sponsoring the show or just have general feedback for us, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us at southernqueriespod at gmail.com. You can find more information about the show and our guests at southernqueries.com. We're also on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. This show is hosted, written, and edited by India Bastian and Aubrey Calvin. The theme song is mixed by Allison Holly. India is responsible for the website and our social media, and Aubrey is responsible for the show research. <laughs>